0: A passage of scripture found at the end of Luke chapter 11, where Luke 11, we made our way as far as verse 37. And the title of my message this morning is Hypocrites and Legalists. And we're going to talk about two very, very dangerous subjects. Why are they dangerous? Because they can ruin and destroy a Christian's life. And so. Let's take a moment because of the nature of the subject that we're going to be looking at. Let's pray before we read our text together. Father, we open our hearts and our minds to your word now, Lord. We pray that you would speak to us through your word on such an important subject. And Father, let us truly understand the danger of both hypocrisy and legalism within the church and what it really means, Lord, and how it doesn't produce freedom but it leads to further bondage and captivity so lord let us learn from this passage father we pray your spirit would minister to our hearts as we do so and we ask this in jesus name amen verse 37 and while jesus was speaking a pharisee asked him to dine with him so he went in and reclined at table the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Oh, you fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you but woe to you pharisees for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of god these things you ought to have done without neglecting others woe to you pharisees for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace woe to you for you are like an unmarked grave and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers answered him and said, teacher, in saying these things, you insulted us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load the people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. "'Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets "'whom your fathers killed. "'So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds "'of your fathers, for they killed them, "'and you build their tombs. "'Therefore also the wisdom of God said, "'I will send them prophets and apostles, "'some in whom they will kill and persecute, "'so that the blood of all the prophets shed "'from the foundations of the world "'may be charged against this generation.'" from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who's perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. And he went away from there, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something that he might say. This is it. This is the confrontation that we've been anticipating between the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and those who are in charge of the complete study and understanding of the Mosaic law, the scribes here called lawyers in our texts. And as Jesus is now making his way to Jerusalem, uh, about to enter in under the uh, hail of those crying out Hosanna, we find one final time of opposition between him and the religious leaders. Undoubtedly, he was was invited to come with them. It's a midday meal, uh, according to most scholars, and so it was around lunchtime, and they wanted to come in, and they wanted to find Jesus at fault for something so they could discredit him and his entire ministry. And Jesus hasn't even been there more than a few minutes when the Pharisees already begin To ask him to recognize the traditions in which they have instilled in Judaism. Not those things that are written in the Mosaic law that are meant for all people to observe. That God has handed down to his people that they may be known as his people. No, these are traditions that they handed down. That they were to ceremonially wash in a certain manner to show their self-righteousness and religious piety. And Jesus wouldn't capitulate. He wouldn't simply just acknowledge their traditions because he knew that the traditions that they held to in the hearts of those individuals were as if they were holding to the word of God itself. And Jesus wanted to distinguish that tradition that man hands down is not the same as the word of God that is handed down to man. And so he enters into this rebuke of them. This passage is known by many as the passage of six woes. And of course they are meant to parallel and mirror the woes of the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah spoke to the nation of Israel for their hypocrisy and for their uh, um, idolatry and also for their legalism, as Isaiah rebuked the nation throughout his book, Now Jesus is focusing in that same rebuke, not on the entire nation, but on the religious leaders who should have known better. And he draws to the surface for us two incredibly dangerous attitudes that a Christian can adopt. And that is hypocrisy and legalism. Hypocrisy and legalism. Two of the most dangerous positions a Christian can adopt. And we're going to talk about that as we go into our text a little bit deeper in just a moment. As Jesus moves through the Gospels, we discover his love and kindness and patience, representing the Father perfectly as he did to the people of Israel. Those who were in grotesque sin, he welcomed openly because they knew they were in need of a Savior. The only times that we find that Jesus raises his voice or shows a sharp rebuke is to the religious leaders and to one of my all-time favorites, Peter himself. But the religious leaders were such a corrupt organization, they were misleading the people by their false witness and false example, they were governed by hypocrisy and they moved through legalism taking the traditions of man and bolting them on the necks and the collars of the individuals for them to carry when they themselves have no uh, desire to carry them whatsoever. And as Jesus says, you don't lift one finger to lift the burdens that you yourself impose on others. That means that they themselves have no interest in trying to carry such a heavy burden before the people. Jesus calls them out directly. He calls the Pharisees out for their hypocrisy, and he calls the lawyers out for their legalism towards the people. And so let us begin, as we make our way now through this portion of our text, as we begin with the Pharisees, the individuals that have invited him to the table, And while Jesus was speaking to the people, verse 37, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and reclined at the table. Of course, the table was uh, in the center of the room and they reclined around the table. They didn't sit at the table. They reclined around the table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he, that is Jesus, did not first wash before dinner. And again, this was a traditional Uh, application. This was something instilled by the Pharisees. If you have um, significant curiosity to know what it was like back in the day of Jesus, for a person who desired to follow the Lord under the guise of Judaism, uh, I would strongly encourage you to read the English version of what's called the Talmud it shows how the religious leaders of that time uh, practically applied what they believed was the law of Moses and they applied it in such a way that nobody could keep it. It was so complicated that the main essence of the law itself was lost before the people. You know, they they were uh, surrounded by a wilderness of mirrors, as one may say, and they could not find their way through the thickness of the ambiguity and the legalism that was set before them. And you'll be astonished, and it'll also help you understand many of the comments that Jesus makes through the Gospels. And that, of course, was followed by the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a second portion of that. It's like today, if you go and you want to know about the Constitution of the United States of America, you'll read the Constitution, and then you'll find in the Library of Congress just numerous books on what that Constitution actually means. And without you know, without reading the Constitution first, you'd get lost in the myriad of different ideas and opinions by the writers of those books trying to clarify the the meaning and the intent of the Constitution from the beginning. That's what was happening to these people. And many of them were uneducated. Many of them felt that even questioning the religious leaders of that time was uh, a position of pride and arrogance, and so they didn't do so. And so they were subjected to such nonsense constantly. And Jesus pushed against this constantly so one of the traditions found was that before they ate they would ceremonially cleanse themselves in a way that looked incredibly pious and they would do so and they would go through a ritual of cleaning and it seems like that when the meal was put forward and as the pharisees began to go through this ritual cleaning jesus just dove into the sub sandwich That's in the book of 1st Eric. Um, Dove into the food. And they were appalled. The word astonished there could be appalled. They were upset. Because it really indicated to them that Jesus was not respecting their authority. Which, he was not respecting their authority. Why? Because he was God. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, Now, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You know, I think all of us have gone through the chore of trying to teach our children to wash dishes properly. We had a dishwasher growing up, but my dad felt what was the point of a dishwasher when he adopted two kids. So, you know, my sister and I would look for any type of shortcut that we possibly could in the dishwashing process so we could get done and through with it and then out the door and out playing. And so my sister came up with this idea that she would soak all the dishes in uh, soapy water and then take each one out of the soapy water and rinse it off in a pool of clean water and then put it into the rack. And that worked in some cases, and the outside of the dishes looked pretty good, but then my dad would turn the dishes inside, you know, look inside, and there'd be stuff at the bottom of the cups and and so on, and it'd be absolutely gross. I knew better. I knew what she was doing, so I would take each and every cup to make sure I didn't drink of it, but it was each man for themselves. And you know, it was a way of skirting around the process. Because, of course, why do it right the first time when you can do it over 15 times and learn your lesson properly? But Jesus uses this as an example. Back in the Old Testament law, there was very clear instructions on how utensils were meant to be cleansed. And he's showing them their own personal hypocrisy in what he says. You're so worried about the manner and way the outside looks, you don't care what's going on in the inside at all, do you? Oh, you look good on the outside. You look pious going through your hand-washing ceremonies. You look pious with the robes that you wear as you walk through the marketplace. You look righteous as you stand at the corner and shout out to God in your prayers. These are all examples given to us through the Gospels. But what's going on inside is the problem. What's happening inside of you is the real issue and he tells them very clearly though the outside of the dish may be clean or appear clean green and greed and wickedness are on the inside and he says here did not he who make made the outside make the inside also now, to rectify this, he went on to say in verse 41, now give alms of those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. The religious leaders believed that if they carried themselves in an outward manner in a certain uh, prescribed uh, manifestation, they would be considered righteous and the example for people to follow. But Jesus is saying no. The work of God in the the life of the individual does not begin from the outside in. It begins from the inside out with a brand new heart. It starts in the new covenant where God takes the heart of stone out of us and gives us a heart of flesh that in and through that new heart, we may example a new life. And from what is happening within, the outward is changed. And yet, So many people to this day are more concerned about their outward appearance than their inward heart before God. And I have to tell you something. You are not fooling anyone if you have that mindset. Oh, you may be fooling the person next to you, but you're certainly not fooling God, who ultimately is the one that you need to be concerned about. Jesus is saying, what's going on in your heart is disgusting. It's wrong. You can look as righteous and as pious as you want on the outside, but inwardly it's full of greed and evilness and wickedness. He says, come on. And he calls them, you fools. And this particular Greek word is so unique because it parallels a Hebrew word that means you who are willfully disobeying God. You know what's right, and yet you refuse to do it. And Jesus attacks the, not attacks, but he, well, attacks this persona of hypocrisy that the Pharisees have clouded themselves with and clothed themselves with. And Jesus is saying, I see right to the heart. And then he begins three woes. Notice with me. He says, but woe to you, fairy, uh, fairies, fairies, uh, Pharisees. <laughs> okay, I just recently got Disney Plus. You know what I've been watching. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint, rue, and every herb. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Bible asks for 10%, per- the Old Testament asked for 10% of everything that they had. So to show their you know, righteousness, every herb given to them, they would meticulously weigh out 10% of the weight of that herb and give it on to God. They'd be give a a bag of salt. And so they would weigh out 10% of the weight of that salt and give it to God. And Jesus says, you so meticulously go through the ritual of weighing out the different measurements of these herbs to give back to God. And yet... You neglect, notice what he says here. Justice, and notice what the second thing is. The love of God. I will tell you, nothing disappears and dissipates faster in the wake of hypocrisy and legalism than the love of God. And by losing that understanding of the love of God, you truly lose the entire essence of christianity you miss it all and jesus is saying it right here to us in your hypocrisy in you so meticulously taking these little herbs and and giving them on to god you neglect justice what is right before god and you neglect the love of god because no one is going to find the love of god in separating their herbs in such a way will they And what he is also saying here is that when you do divide those herbs, you're not doing it because you love God. You're doing it to be a uh, self-righteous individual before the people. And so as a result, he rebukes them for this. And these you have ought to have done without neglecting others. And then the second woe, he says here to them, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. One of the aspects of hypocrisy is the individual looking to be celebrated by his peers. That is usually the strongest motivation for one who wants to walk within the uh, perspective of hypocrisy. They want to be celebrated. They want to be seen for something that they are truly not. When we talk about hypocrisy in the Bible, this had a very distinct meaning and understanding to the people who would read such a word. In fact, if you read the King James, New King James, he, at the end he says, you know, woe to you hypocrites all. Because that's really what he's getting to here. When someone would walk in hypocrisy, they would, it's known for an individual wearing a mask within a play. So that the story itself may be true or not, but they're playing a character within that story that they are not. And so that's what he's saying. You have this narrative of of what God has designed in and through the Mosaic law, and here's who you should be, but you're playing a character that you are not to the people. And you are allowing them to see a falsehood rather than the true identity of the individual. And so they do so to be celebrated, brought into places such as the synagogues, and greeted in the manner of a ce- that a celebrity would be greeted. And in the marketplaces, having individuals whisper as they walk by, Oh, there's a rabbi so and so. You know, I walk the ter- through the church, and nobody says, There's Pastor Eric. Usually one of the kids is pushing me to the side because I'm in the middle of the hallway when they're running. Or I get to the food table and the the very last cracker has been taken. It's usually by Tegan. And, you know, Tegan, I love her. You know, and the last cookie or the last cracker. And she'll walk away and she'll bite into it and go, Hi, Pastor Eric. (laughs) Do your mom and dad know what you do? But these individuals wanted to be celebrated before the people, and therefore they carried themselves in a way that was misleading. One of the definitions for hypocrisy in the New Testament, God bless you, uh, is without wax. Now you say, what the heck is going on here? Well, statues were a huge commodity in that culture. And individuals, of course, who were sculptors would spend hours, if not weeks, months on a sculpture. And if something were to have damaged that sculpture before it could be purchased, instead of tr- throwing the whole sculpture away, they would try to fix the damaged area by forming wax, and it was usually the nose that broke off. So they would formulate and they would, you know, f- uh, form a nose within the sculpture made of wax, and then they would paint it to match it to the color of the stone, etc., and you wouldn't know the difference. So, individuals would then come and buy the statue and they'd bring it home. And most statues were displayed either on the uh, rooftops of the house or on the ledge of the uh, wall or in the front of the home. And in that culture, of course, the sun was very warm. And if you put wax in front of hot sun, what do you get? A mess. And so they would literally watch the nose begin to melt away on the statue in which they just purchased and they would then call the sculptor who did this a hypocrite. He did it for the purpose of deceiving. So not only did these people want it to be celebrated, but they also were doing it in a manner to deceive the people around them and Jesus would not have it. They were so concerned about outward conformity, that they had no mind for inward transformation. And as a result, Jesus calls them to task on it. And in this last of the three woes to the Pharisee in verse 44, he says, Woe to you, for you are, un, are like an unmarked grave, and people walk over them without knowing it. To touch a dead body in that society was, of course, to defile an individual before God. So if you came in contact with a body, a dead body, you were not to touch it because you would become defiled. Now, the religious leaders believed if you walked over a grave that wasn't marked, even though you didn't come in direct contact with that body, you still were defiled. And now Jesus is pointing to them. He's saying that people who come to you You're like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the inside, but you're full of all corruptions and you are defiling the people who come to you. That's what he is saying here. Hypocrisy is one of those things that lives in an epidemic state throughout the the church. People who come to church often believe that they need to become someone that they are not to interact with those who are at church. One of the things that I like to say about our church, and I hope that this always remains true, is that we are real people, right? We all have failures and faults. We are all works in progress by the grace of God. We are, none of us have arrived, none of us have been perfected. None of us have come to that place of ultimate sanctification and had a, I've been sanctified party. None of us have come to that place in our Christian life, right? We're all works in progress. There is nothing wrong with being real about your struggles to another brother or sister in Christ. There's nothing wrong about it at all. I still meet with my mentors to discuss just that. I still meet with my pastor to discuss uh, things just like that. To make sure that I'm continuing to grow to become the man of God that God wants me to be. Dealing with those issues in my life that have now become apparent where earlier on they weren't apparent but now they are. As I've grown in my knowledge and grace of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To deal with these things openly. To become the husband that God wants me to become. To become the parent that God wants me to become. I need to be held accountable. I need to be open and honest with my struggles and my failures and my faults, plus with the added, you know, requirement of remaining blameless as your pastor. I am very, very um, careful about what I do and how I conduct myself. But I am certainly not perfect. I am not perfect at it. And if you were to ride in the car with me, you would see that imperfection come to the surface very quickly. Okay? When it says 55 miles an hour is the speed limit, 35 is not a second suggestion. Go 55, okay? You know, I don't understand. The gas pedal's on the right in all cars. Use the foot that God gave you and let's go, you know. We're all works in progress, aren't we? But the religious leaders were putting up a facade. They weren't allowing people to see their reality. The only perfect individual who ever lived was Christ. And the hypocrisy set a false standard that, of course, no one, no one could obtain. But then the lawyers who were listening to all of this well, they became offended. We know all about people becoming offended when we say things, right? Especially true things. One of the lawyers answered him and says, "Teacher, in these things, you have insulted us also." I just see, I just see him pouting at this point, don't you? Just really it's like Jesus is like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I did, I didn't realize this was a safe place." You know, you know. But look at what he says to him. Because they ought to know better. Remember that, right? These people ought to have known better. And so what does Jesus say to him? Oh, I'm so sorry. He says, woe to you also. And that means, that means horror towards you and sadness because of this, fa- th- this rebuke in which I'm about to present. This was a indictment, a clear indictment by Jesus to these people. Woe to you lawyers also, for you have loaded the people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This is the aspect of legalism, where they have constructed guidelines that the people are meant to perform, and if they do not do so, they are not right with God, or with the people of the nation of Israel. But notice what Jesus says. These things are things that cannot be born. They are too difficult to bear. And they themselves do not lift one finger to try to do them themselves. And so they become legalistic. Setting down rules and regulations for people to conform to that they themselves cannot conform to. When we talk about legalism, let us understand that legalism can present itself uh, in two aspects of the Christian life. The first aspect of legalism is the aspect of legalism concerning our salvation in Jesus Christ, where rules and regulations are mandated to be followed and kept in order to obtain and in many cases maintain our salvation in Jesus Christ. Meaning that it isn't simply grace by faith, it is uh, more is required. And Paul wrote an entire book of the New Testament challenging just this idea. It's the book of Galatians, where religious individuals came in after Paul to the Gentiles in whom he was ministering to, and demanded that these Gentiles become Jews first, including being circumcised, and then they could become Christians. So legalism can present itself when a law or a set of rule and regulations are implied or I should say imparted or implemented along with what they would consider grace. Now they'll argue and say, oh yes, it is by grace, but you have to keep all these rules and regulations on top of that. That's where legalism comes into play in your salvation. We have been saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that new birth that, is, that takes place at that moment that we believe allows the Spirit of God to reign in us and to begin the sanctification process within us and through us. We do not need a standard of rules and regulations to obtain salvation. You do not need to be baptized to be saved that's called baptismal regeneration and we have we have examples in the bible where individuals were not baptized and yet still were saved however though there will be some who tell you no not only do you have to get saved but then you have to be baptized on top of that to be saved and that's not what the bible states and so let us be very very careful that when we present the gospel, we always present it in the framework of the grace of God that it has been presented to us within. That's one aspect where you'll see legalism. The more common aspect of legalism is found in the sanctification of the believer in Jesus Christ. Now let me explain. The sanctification process is God separating us from the world and bringing us into a state in which He can use us for His glory and His purpose. We call it that work that is in progress in our life. We may uh, explain it by saying we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. All of that would be appropriate to say being restored to that perfection that God once created us in, in Adam, and that we severed ourselves from in our sin and death, and etc. God is now restoring through the person of Jesus Christ in and through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. That sanctification process is a work on the inside of the individual that then manifests itself to the outside. Let's say it again. The sanctification process is the work of the Spirit on the inside of the individual manifest on the outside. There are some Christians who want to believe that outward conformity to a set of rules and regulations is the same as sanctification. But let me ask you that question from our perspective this morning. That seems to be exactly what Jesus is not speaking of here, is he? He is saying that, yes, the outward can look a certain way, can't it? But the heart can be far from him. The mouth can draw close to him, but the heart can be far from him. He is saying that the outward doesn't necessarily indicate, just by simple conformity, that the inward is being changed, is it? And so when we require someone to conform and they obey, we may want to believe, oh, look at the work that God is doing. No, this is what you've imposed upon them. This is what you have confined them to. That's why here at Calvary, I always allow God to work first in the life of the individual. Somebody may bring something to my attention that so-and-so isn't behaving the way they should as a Christian. And they'll then look at me and say, so what are you going to do about it? Hmm? I want to watch you scold them. And I say to them, I said, I'm going to pray first. Because I can approach them and show them all the scripture, but God can work on the inside and change them from the inside out. Do you know how many times a situation like that has been brought to me and I've prayed and asked the Lord, Lord, you know what, they're yours, they're your kids. This is something that has to be dealt with and I'm not reluctant to do that, but I always want to give God the first shot because He can do it better than I can. And sure enough, nine times out of ten He works before I even have to get involved because it is a work from the inside out, looking for the transformation of a person's heart. That's one of the great indications to know that a person is saved is by the fruit in which they manifest, right? The fruit. Now, I am not an agriculturalist whatsoever. You could put three different plants before me uh, and I wouldn't know which one of them is which. But if time went on and they were bearing fruit and one was a tomato plant, the other one was a grapevine, etc. and so forth, by the fruit I could say, oh, that's a tomato, that's a, that's a grape. And Jesus said, by you fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. This is how to know if the true transformation has taken place within the heart of the individual. However, though, because many do not want to wait for God, they want to intervene in the process to see if they can hurry the process along. They will set up rules and regulations to try to outwardly conform people into whom they want them to be and not necessarily concerned about what God wants them to be. Let me be clear. This is an aspect where we have to be very, very very careful that I am not implementing personal convictions in gray areas That God has established in my life upon another individual that he has not established those same parameters of conviction within in their life. Now let me be clear. Where the Bible says we shall not do things, we shall not do those things, right? That's not a gray area. Where the Bible says we should do things, then we do those things. That's not a gray area and those are not up up for debate. But let me give you an example if I may of what may be considered a gray area. And I have to be honest that many women I feel very bad for because they struggle under a great deal of ambiguity when it comes to the matter of modesty. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, if I may. 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. And this is appropriate because it deals with Paul instructing people on how they should gather when they come to church. Okay, that makes sense. So let us read here what Paul says as he addresses the men and the women of the church. And specifically for our topic today, let us address what he says to women. Now notice here in verse 9, if you will, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, right? Says it in the word of God and we want to be obedient to that. But then there comes a lot of words here that need to be defined, don't they? They certainly do. First of all, the context is for these women coming and gathering into a church situation. And Paul, first and foremost, is concerned that their adornment, meaning what they wear, be respectable apparel for the context of entering into the church. Okay? Respectable. What is respectable for coming into a church? Is there some ambiguity there? Yeah, there sure is. But personal conviction, the tutelage of older women in Christ, can bring about the understanding of what is respectable. For example, there are some of you women dressed here today that many would consider disrespectful. Because your skirts, well, if you're wearing skirts, aren't long enough. If you're wearing jeans, then you're apostate, you know. If you're wearing a skirt that isn't just uh, touching the back of your heels uh, and maybe one inch above your ankle, well, that's disrespectful. Do you see where I'm going with this, guys? Do you see the tediness that can be brought about in this kind of, uh, this kind of thing? if we try to superimpose a tradition rather than what God has explained here. Now, personally, I feel that everyone dressed here is dressed perfectly acceptable for church. You know, if you match, you're perfectly acceptable for church. That's my standard each Sunday. I match the little animals up and head out to church. Now, notice what he says here. That's the context. Coming into church, simply wear something that's respectable. Now, when I teach at churches that require suits and ties, guess what? I wear a suit and tie to be respectable to their congregation. I have no problem with that. But that's not a standard that we had set here. But I would, out of just courtesy to them, I'm not opposed to wearing a suit and tie. I mean, they don't know it's a clip-on, so I get away with it anyway. You know, but notice notice the ambiguity here. and then, with modesty, well, okay, this is this is another one that has a vast array of meaning, doesn't it? Because someone may feel that genes are incredibly immodest. Others may feel that they're they're perfectly fine. When I was an assistant pastor at uh, Calvary Chapel of Elk Grove. I was, (laughs) I got all the odd jobs and I had to address a situation where some of the women believed that the young ladies who were coming in, these were new believers, weren't dressing modestly and they were simply coming in in jeans, t-shirts and gym shoes and so forth. It's not like they were wearing their bathing suits or, you know, half top, you know, uh, and you know, whatever else, you know, uh, they they would wear at that time back in the 80s. It was, they were fine. But in my investigation of the process, I discovered that many of those women were acting out of jealousy because they were having children and their husbands, they were afraid that they were no longer going to gain their husband's attention, etc. And so they wanted these young women to be um, rebuked or corrected for their ill modesty when in actuality it was an issue of their own heart that was a problem. Do you see where this becomes an issue? Now, please understand that when he is talking about, you know, this modesty, respectful apparel, he is talking about it from personal self-conviction. He believes, meaning he is writing to the women of the church who are dressing themselves, saying, you know what's respectable, you know what is modest and with self-control, and you understand that the braided hair and the gold and pearls has a completely different meaning in that culture than it does today. I see many of you wearing earrings today. Did you even think about it, that it being unbiblical? Of course not. Because it doesn't mean the same today. I see some braided their hair. Some have buns. I have none, you know. And so, you know, you braided your hair this morning, but you didn't consider it to be, uh, you know, ill-modest, disrespectful, uh, without self-control? No, of course not. Because it doesn't mean the same today. So the lawyers, the scribes, people today, they want to fill in the blanks. And they want you to conform to their understanding of righteousness. They want you to conform to what they believe should be modest and respectful and so forth. Now, the other aspect of this is this. Having a daughter, you know, Dina was very good at helping her, learning modesty and so forth. And of course, the conversation came in, well, I must be careful because I don't want to stumble any man who sees me. And I told her, I said, honey, you can do whatever you want to do that. You can wrap yourself in a blanket uh, and wrap yourself in bubble pack and it's still going to happen. Islamic women have to wear the entire garb, don't they? And with only a small slit for their eyes. But even that's being closed now because men can still find a way of, to lust. Instead of holding the woman accountable for the man's responsibility, let's hold a man responsible for the lust in his own heart. That's the way I feel about it now again if there was a situation that was completely inappropriate no that we would address it i'm not saying that we wouldn't but i am saying let us be very careful that we are not defining these words that god has left open for us to define through personal conviction does that make sense and yes a young believer needs to be trained and to understand as they grow but help them to uh, undergo that in a godly, biblical way. And i got to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest with you. I thought that this would completely lie on the shoulders of Dina when it came to the raising of our daughter. And do you know who had a tremendous impact on this thing? Her dad. You know, her dad. She came out in a skirt one time for homecoming, and I said, Nope! Nope, unless you go and that other half you have on layaway, go get that next, you know. But helping them see it. Because I wanted her to be respected by everyone and what you wear will say, hey, do I respect myself first and foremost? And being appropriate. And how you apparel yourself for any given uh, application. Does that make sense? legalism will come in and try to define these things for the people. But let me read a couple of scriptures for you, if I may. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, through 5, and we'll wrap it up quickly. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control. Here is where that self-conviction comes in, that self-personal uh, conviction comes in. For each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It is a work of the Spirit in the life of the individual. He went on in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we all ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you to, as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And Peter echoed this also he says according to the foreknowledge of god you elect in the father in the sanctification of the spirit. spirit excuse me for obedience to jesus christ the work of sanctification in the life of the individual is a work of the spirit of god through the word of god in the life of the individual and yes of course you understand that where the bible is clear there is no debate If it says to do it, we should do it. If the Bible says we should not do it, we should not do it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where there's areas that are gray, that have to be thought through before application can be drawn properly. Therefore, guaranteeing that we are not setting a standard that God has not set. That we are not like the lawyers, raising a burden that no one can bear and they themselves have no reason to bear it themselves or no wanting to bear it themselves and as we conclude he went back if you will he says in verse 47 woe to you for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your father have killed so you are witnesses and you uh, consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you built their tombs meaning that when the prophets came you condone the work of your fathers by building the tombs in which they were buried in, and you honor them as prophets, but yet you weren't interested to hearing what they had to say. You weren't interested in the instruction in which they brought, but you still will honor them, even though your fathers killed them, but you will not obey what they have said. And therefore, verse 49, therefore also the wisdom of God, that is the key to understanding, The the understanding of what God actually desired through the law. I will send them prophets and apostles, but some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Now, that's a very interesting statement. I want to share with you what that means. The first murder in the Bible was who? Cain and Abel. In the Old Testament compilation of the Old Testament books, Second Chronicles was at the very end. And in 2 Chronicles, the last murder is the murder of Zechariah. And so Jesus is saying that from the very beginning to the very end, every murder that took place of the righteous people of God are going to be on your shoulders. Very interesting, I thought. And he says here, and yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. He says, but woe to you lawyers again, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you've hindered those who were entering. This is what Jesus finally concludes. It's the climax of what he's saying, that through your legalism, the main message was lost. Through the legalism that you imposed upon the people, you lost the main message, everything from the love of God to the grace of God, etc. And each and every church, each and every individual that governs their lives by legalism Will always negate the meta narratives that are really the moving and driving force behind our change. You know, I follow Christ because I love Christ, because He first loved me, and that's my only response to Him. But my love manifested for Him is my obedience to Him, right? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But if the love of God has been erased and negated by the legalism implied, then he's saying, then you've lost the message. You've lost it all. And this is why legalism and hypocrisy is so dangerous. Because we lose the message itself, the main understanding of things. And as a result here, not only do they not enter, but they actually are hindering others from entering in also. And verse 53. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something that he may say. And so it continues. Paul the Apostle made it clear that conformity is not what God was interested in. Now let's understand that when the Bible talks about conformity, it's always talking about something in the outward impressing upon the person from an outward um, position or from an outward uh, um, direction. Okay, conforming, meaning something is there and something from the outside is conforming, okay? Paul says do not be conformed to this world. That's what the world will do to you. Legalism will try to conform the person from the outside in the same way. But he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. True Christianity is understanding that in the salvation process, God is restoring you back to your original state. He's hitting reset on your life. He's taking and moving you away from sin and death and the effects thereof and bringing you into that Image of Jesus. Now, we think of that often as simply resembling him in deed, word, and in action, okay? But I think that I can make a strong argument that Paul is saying that he's bringing us back to the state of perfection. Perfection. Jesus was perfect, wasn't he? Now, that's not going to happen here on this earth. We're going to be a work in progress until that day we die. And then we are given a new body that allows us to once again walk in the perfection that we were originally created in. But it's a work of the Spirit of God. So many churches are trying to conform their people to a standard of living through a legalistic preaching of the Word of God. Let me tell you that that has no effect on a congregation who isn't saved, right? I can beat you up each and every Sunday, and you may start to act differently simply because I'm beating you up, but most likely you're going to rebel against it. But I can get you not to swear anymore. You know, not to take the condiment bottles from Chipotle anymore. You know, it's just like ketchup, right? Take a whole Tabasco with you. Not to cheat on your income taxes. I can conform you to many, many good things that you should be doing, but that doesn't mean that you're saved and it doesn't mean that your heart has been changed, does it? No, of course not. That's what we're seeking through the teaching of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to God for you to be changed from the inside out. And then you know what? It's a permanent change. It's a permanent change. It may take longer, right? Am I saying we don't need rules and regulations? No, don't go to the extremes. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying when we implement legalism in the sanctification process, we are always going to miss the big picture. Always. Because it is God who does the work in and through us. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me.